You're listening to the David Bumble Networking Podcast. Very good day interviewing a lot of Cisco engineers. We discuss all things networking, CCNA, CCNP, CCIE, Python, automation, the books, the exams, the future, your career. Another long day at Cisco Live. We talk to the authors, the experts, the leaders, and people like you and me. David Bumble coming to you from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Now, here's your host, David Bumble. There was no crazy zero day. There was no, they had super ninjas coming from black helicopters dropping into the solar winds building to, to make this thing happen. What is that? Are they bats? What I think is awesome to talk about about the solar winds breach are you get to peek behind how a uh, a state-sponsored actor work. And so before I talk about that, what I'd like to say is that for your for your ethical hackers that are out there, um, if you're new into ethical hacking, don't let anybody ever tell you that you can't. So your next question, when do I move from being a script kitty to being a hacker? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, my, my cynical answer to that, David, is- I wanna ask you this question. When I've created videos and I've shown people stuff like with PowerShell, they tell me that's stupid because I would just disable that. So what's <laughs> what's the what's the <laughs> in your experience because you've worked with so many organizations? Here's best practice and like what yeah. you've just said. What do companies actually do? Because oh man, oh man. You know, I I used to think I was going to be pen tester for life, right? You know, pen tester for life. <laughs> um, um, you know, and 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 you know, it, it's easy to think like that. Um, and I, and I could go back there and I could, and I definitely had a fun time doing it, but at the same time, when you realize, and, and this is what I tell people, I'm like, if you go into most for, fortune 100 companies and you look at their security operations teams, their security teams under the CISO, there are a fraction, less than 1%, less than 0.5% of people on that security team that are doing offensive hacking. And that's not because it sucks. That's not because it's in high demand. That's not because there's not enough talent. That's not because of anything else other than in a cybersecurity strategy, the ability to do penetration testing is such a small, small fraction that influences the overall cybersecurity strategy of the biggest companies in the entire world. So Neil, you need to tell me now because you know, you've been involved in a lot of corporates and uh, a lot of government organizations. What is your take on the solar winds story? Uh, there's, I have a lot of takes on the solar winds story. Um, one of the the first things that I want to kind of like level set right is is uh, from from my days in in the government and my days of doing you know doing doing that role for for the the United States of America and the, and the NSA. Um, this is not the first time. This is just the first time we caught them, right? That old adage, this is very much the case here is this. This is just happens to be the first time that we caught the Russians. Um, and, and I'll say this, um, and, and you can you have to read deep to find this. Um, the only reason they were caught is because they took an operational risk that they knew was an operational risk and it got noisy and they got picked up on their defensive mechanisms. Uh, and, and so that shows that that was part of a strategic plan. They were op operating on a regular basis from a, a cyber uh, offensive cyber operations campaign. And it was because they made a mistake that ultimately got them caught. Um, and, and so I think it's a it's a it's it's a 
testament and a realization um, of, of the, the state of cyber war that we're in. And, and I want to get on a small, small, small soapbox on this because this is something this is something I, I recently spoke with the CEO of a Fortune 100 company the, the, the other week. And, and one of the, 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 the statements that I mentioned to him when we were talking about the SolarWinds thing, um, you know, when I got out of the military in, in 2013, um, you know, I'd spent 10 years of my life dealing with APT, dealing with state-sponsored activity and things like that. Um, um, when I got out... You know, it was hard to make that distinction between, you know, were APTs the threat or were cyber criminals the threat based on the industry and the vertical that I was in. And it was very siloed in that regard. I can remember an APT attack happening and, and us being like, I'm going to stop you right now just for the international audience. What what are the acronyms that you're using? Sorry, sorry. APT, uh, Advanced Persistent Threat. So typically APT is referred to it, it's we use APT as a short acronym for state sponsored activity. Um, or, or really sophisticated actors. Now, in most cases, that doesn't necessarily mean they're sophisticated. It's just an acronym that's been used for a number of years in our industry to kind of not, you know, you know, denominate sophisticated hack attacks. So ap apologies for interrupting you. So carry, no, no, carry that's on. Okay. That's, um, I get carried away with no, this, no, no. So. Go for it. I'll, I'm enjoying <laughs> it. Um, and 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 so uh, I th I think as as we've seen the industry grow. And the offensive and the defensive side, the, the cyber criminals as ransomware has become a huge part of 2020 because of everybody being forced at home. And we can go on a completely different segment on, on that as well. I think what we've what we've seen is the lines that exist between cyber war, state-sponsored cyber warfare, like what we just recently saw with solar winds, and common commodity malware attacks, that line between those two is really, really, really starting to fade away. And we're really starting to see the, the blurring images of this. And here's the example that I give. When did you think, or when at SolarWinds, did they have a conversation at the CISO, at the CIO, or the board level, where they sat down and said, you know what? We have a lot of DOD people who are our customers. We have a lot of um, you know, you know, you know, companies like Microsoft that are our customers. We have a lot of uh, companies like FireEye that are our customers. You know what? Maybe we should start thinking about our cybersecurity team the same way that the NSA thinks about protecting, you know, its infrastructure, or the same way that the DoD thinks about protecting its infrastructure. Maybe we should start thinking like military commanders, and we should start thinking about strategy to task, and we should start thinking about, you know, you know, preparing for cyber war. That was never a conversation that happened at the SolarWinds executive team level. Um, and I think when you look at it like that, if you're a company that supplies anything to any company, you need to ask yourself, do you need to be engaged in, do you need to start thinking like a military commander because you might be in the throes of cyber war and you just don't even know it yet? Yeah, I mean, what I heard in the press is that they actually cut back and that caused more problems. They didn't invest uh, in beefing up security. Uh, some of the decisions, whatever, I mean, as mentioned in the press, might've actually yeah. made it worse. Yeah, I mean, there's there's all sorts of security failings, right? I, I've I've seen, you know, GitHub repos with like uh, SolarWinds 123 on it or, or, or things like that. An FTP server, I think, was found in 2019 that had a, a guestable password. I think all of those fall back into what we would have, whether we were having a, 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 P, a PCI, payment card industry conversation or, um, you know, HIPAA, you know, which is the, no, shoot, I shouldn't have mentioned HIPAA because I can't tell you what that acronym that is. Door, door. The healthcare, yeah. <laughs> the, the healthcare uh, uh, you know, regulations. All of that is like security 101, and those are things that we um, we always talk about. But I think that that's vastly different than having a, corp a conversation at the executive level that says, 
we might have to go to war with Russia. We might have to defend our our company from Russia versus the people who wrote, you know, TrickBot or, you know, any of the other, you know, malware or ransomware kits that are out there. From what I read between the lines about the SolarWinds hack is it's actually going to help people who are looking for jobs in this industry because it's kind of put a big <laughs> spotlight on it, hasn't it? So do you, do you foresee that in the next few years there's going to be a lot more roles for for this? I mean, uh, we, we're discussing like military type, you know, ideas or ways of doing things. What, what do you think this is? What's going to be the effect of this? I, I don't think that this singular incident is going to have a drastic increase in driving people to cybersecurity. Um, and, and I say that not to say that that this is a low key incident or anything like that. I think I think if you take a look at the last 12 months as a whole, if you look at, you know, the pandemic, um, you know, you see IT organizations that have had to massively force a remote workforce into their organizations. Their VPN concentrators couldn't hold the load. They didn't know how to secure remote workstations. They didn't know how to secure third party vendors that were coming into into organizations to do remote work. You're um, I've I've heard horror stories of laptops that have gone home um, from companies and that's the only computer in that household. And so you can imagine <laughs> that the husband is using that computer, the kids are using that computer, right, for all sorts of stuff. And so that that puts a, a huge amount of risk on a cybersecurity organization that never existed ever before. And so I think over the last 12 months, and then that's not even to take in the fact that um, as part of the pandemic, ransomware, I'm waiting for the, the FBI report to release their annual report, but I would venture to say that 2020 was exponentially more profitable for ransomware makers than any other year prior, simply because, and I'm saying exponentially more profitable because of the pandemic and because of everybody working from home. I think that has put an emphasis on the need for cybersecurity. I think what's happened at CISA, one of the weird things that's happened, weird good um, here in the States is we've oftentimes criticized the, the FBI or the NSA because they know about cyber attacks and they know about adversaries and they know about exploits, but they don't share them with the, the private companies. Um, and so I think mid-year, we started to see a lot of, um, I think this happened around the, um, the F5 of, uh, zero day that happened. And then it happened with some of the win login stuff that happened with the Microsoft vulnerability, where we actually saw NSA come out on their Twitter account and be like, you need to patch this right now. Like, this is a problem right now sort of thing. And then we see CISA, you know, take a more active role in putting out bulletins about vulnerabilities and zero days and things like that out there. I think that shows a shift where there's a lot of focus on cybersecurity that started about mid-year last year. I think FireEye and SolarWinds um, obviously continue to blow it up. But I, I think that it's really just riding the wave of why we need more people in cybersecurity. There's a, there's a, there's an interesting stat I throw around when people ask me about it. There's three and a half million um, uh, unfilled open cybersecurity positions globally in the in the, in, the, in the industry right now, and and the, there's not enough people to fill those three and a half million open headcount right now. And so I think that I think that's just going to continue to exacerbate as we roll into 2021. So if you've got any like thoughts about how I I, I was going to talk just about solar winds, but I think. I, I don't know. Is it is, is any details you want to talk about solar winds, or does it just get boring? And should we just? It it, it just gets boring. I mean, okay. I, it, when people talk about solar winds, I mean, we can, there's there's things that we can talk about in terms of like some of the sophistication that happened, some of the unique things that happened about it, some of the things that we've uncovered about the operational security. But 
you know, solar talking about solar winds as a breach, and I'll say this is if you want it, if just in case you want to use this content, That'd be great, right? Yeah. Talking about solar winds as a breach is just like talking about any other company as a breach. What we what what we have to look at is was there a failing on basic security controls? A hundred percent. But that is no different, literally, than almost every other security breach that we've talked about for the last you know five to to to, to ten years. You know, there there was no crazy zero day. There was no, you know, they, they had super ninjas coming from black helicopters dropping into the solar winds <laughs> building to, to make this thing happen. Um, what I think is awesome to talk about about the solar winds breach are you get to peek behind how a, uh, a state-sponsored actor work. And so before I talk about that, what I'd like to say is that for your, for your ethical hackers that are out there, um, if you're new into ethical hacking, don't let anybody ever tell you that you can't conduct a penetration test the same way that state-sponsored actors do. They'll tell you it takes too much time. You won't have enough time and scope to do it. And what I'm telling you is that that's a fallacy because people are thinking that to be APT or advanced persistent threat, it takes you a year to do a penetration test. And those two things are completely uncorrelated together. What makes a penetration test awesome is your ability to think outside the box. And that's exactly what it's like to look behind some of these um, these write-ups on how, um, especially the one that just came out um, uh, from, from CrowdStrike, about how they had malware sitting on developers' computers that did nothing except wait for a specific code compile process uh, on these developers' computers and then inject its malicious process into that code compile process before it got to the code repository. Now that's a level of stealth. That's a level of operational security where, you know, I talk very frequently to, to folks um, when they ask me for advice to think about what are your requirements and make sure you're designing something that fits form and function. You don't need a big, loud, noisy command and control bot on every computer you hack as part of a penetration test. Maybe you only need one component. Maybe you only need to steal passwords out of memory. Maybe you only need to inject into one DLL to get their camera because it's a, a camera in a, in a conference room or something like that. Um, that's very much what you get to see inside the solar winds hack is these guys put malware onto a computer that did one job and that's what allowed them to stay persistent, stealthy and exist in that environment for as long as they did. That's great. I mean, I, I want to, while you're talking about that, I want to kind of ask you some questions that, um, that will help people. Do you think to be a good ethical hacker, you need to learn to code? And which language would you recommend, if any? That's a, that's a, the short answer is, do I recommend you learning to code? Yes. Is it an operational requirement? No. And then I'll preface that by saying, if you're an ethical hacker, that does not make you a coder. And if you are a coder, that doesn't make you an ethical hacker. The two things are ridiculous to me. I can code, but I'm not a programmer. I, I couldn't program myself out of a wet paper bag. My, my code has no comments. It's all run together. Excuse me. The indention is bad. I mean, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible practices from a programmer perspective. I, I think, um, I think knowing programming is important in ethical hacking. If you're looking on the, the hierarchy of things you need to learn over your ethical hacking career, I think you're going to be hard pressed to go your entire ethical hacking career without learning some level of scripting or programming. But you don't have to know the inner bowels of C++ or Pascal or, you know, or, or Python or anything like that to be a beginner 
level hacker whatsoever. Um, I tell people, if you're looking for three, and you'll you'll see this as a trend with me, David. I always talk about the top three. Um, I, right, because I like it. It's <laughs> easy. It's easy to understand. Go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I say I say if you're looking for the three things to put on your your vision board or your wish list or the the, the learning curve that you've got to do to be good in IT or good in ethical hacking, Bash scripting, Python, PowerShell. I like that. Those three things. I, like that. I think I think those three things. If you have a foundation there. Everything else is is easy off of that. It's basically you're talking about shell scripting and Python yeah. as the as the as the as the way to get in. Is that right? Or exactly, exactly. Linux shell scripting, Windows shell scripting, and Python to kind of Python for APIs, Python to bridge the gaps. You can install Python libraries onto Windows. Um, but if you do, if you look at um, some of the ethical hacking toolkits that are out there, like Powersploit, Mimikatz. Um, uh, you know, some of the, the empire, uh, command and control, uh, post-exploitation kits that are out there. Those are all very PowerShell, Wimic, you know, kind of coded and focused. Um, you know, there's still, PowerShell is still incredibly valuable. Most organizations, um, either don't have PowerShell V3 or don't have PowerShell logging turned on. And in most organizations that I've been a part of, um, the execution policies, uh, in the active directory environments are set to allow PowerShell code to run from anybody anywhere. And so PowerShell can be incredibly useful. Most IT teams aren't going to turn it off because they need it for their SCCM pushes or whatever the case is um, inside their IT organizations. Um, so PowerShell from that aspect, um, shell scripting because uh, you're probably using Kali Linux or some Debian version that you've you've um, mangled together to, to do ethical hacking. And so you're going to do for loops. You're going to do if-then statements. You're going to do... Um, you know, all sorts of stuff, real easy, you know, command, uh, you know, greps and things like that from a command line on, um, uh, on, on Linux and then Python to focus on APIs, focus on interoperability between lots of different operating systems, focus on threading, because if you're doing like, you know, millions or thousands of, of queries on something, you're going to want to thread it out. So, um, I, I think it's, it's shell scripting Python and then everything else on top of that. I mean, that's great. I mean, so let me, I want to ask you this question. When I've created videos and I've shown people stuff like with PowerShell, they tell me that's stupid because I would just disable that. So what's, <laughs> what's the, what's the <laughs> in your experience, because you've worked with so many organizations, here's best practice. And like what you've just yeah. said, what do companies actually do? Because Oh, man. Oh, man. I, I, I can count on one hand, I think, the amount of companies that I've actually looked at that have PowerShell logging enabled and going into their SIM um, and have by default execution policies turned off. And of the companies that do have execution policies turned off on workstations, um, most users still have the ability to change that execution policy. They just don't realize it because it's not something a normal user would do. And so I've literally popped onto a box um, uh, used the user shell that I had access to, changed the execution policy uh, on that box to allow me to execute you know, user-generated PowerShell code, pulled my PowerShell code over into that user shell, elevated my privileges with that PowerShell code, and gotten a shell back, an elevated shell back, just by simply running you know, PowerShell, um, uh, PowerShell code on a box. So, so yeah, best practices. PowerShell v3, PowerShell logging on, execution mode turned off, push everything out through pre-designed, you know, pre-written MSIs via SCCM. Yeah, that's all best practices. Not what happens in the majority of the organizations. 
I'm glad you said that because I, I think it sounds like a lot of the the problems is people don't do best practice for whatever reason. They don't think it's you know, it's necessary, it's too much hassle, whatever. So your next question, when do I move from being a script kitty to being a hacker? <laughs> um, I, I, my, my cynical answer to that, David, is when you stop posting that you DDoS people by getting their IP address on Reddit, <laughs> when you stop posting that you've downloaded somebody else's code and ran it one time on a test machine and therefore you're elites or hacks or... Um, when you stop thinking that just because you have Kali Linux inside of a VM that you're <laughs> that you're a hacker, when you change that mindset, in my mind, you're no longer a script kitty. If we can break people out of that mindset of of trying to put their egos, um, the fact that that the ignorance of less smart people to understand what Kali Linux is or the value of an IP address, when we stop trying to use fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, to, to, te- to tell people how awesome you are in this space, I think that's when you mentally graduate out of the, the script kitty phase. I, I mean, we, we spoke about some of this offline, but uh, let, let's talk about this now. There seems to be this, um, I, I've had on my YouTube videos, I get the, the best comments ever on my hacking videos or my yeah. like ethical hacking videos. The, the, you are an, I won't even mention the words, beep, 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 whatever. <laughs> there seems to be this, um, for whatever reason, this issue in the in, in, in the ethical hacking s- space, if you like, of my ego is better than yours or I'm better than yes. yours. So, you know, what, what, what would you say to that? Um, I, I think that I, th- I've written about this. I've written I've written articles for folks about this. I actually had a pretty divisive uh, rift in my community, um, having written about the toxicity inside of cybersecurity inside of InfoSec. Um, and if you've if you've been part of some of the bigger followings and groups on Twitter, it's real easy to get caught up in in some of the just real toxicity that happens inside the cybersecurity community. And I think a lot of that toxicity is very much centered around people's egos. And, and I'm not a psychology. I don't play one on TV and I didn't sit at a Holiday Inn last night. Um, but what I will say is I think I think a couple of things have contributed to that. We have, um, you know, people who are who are chest thumpers who are like, I hack Stratfor. Or I'm part of Anonymous. I bring down global governments. Um, you know, yeah. um, um, you know, they, they they're like, who, who, who I hacked into hacking team. Um, you know, and, and, and they're held, they hold those things up as badges of honor. And, and what that's done is that's created a mentality that says that, you know, if, if you're not this good, if you're not this high to ride this ride, you don't belong in this industry. Um, and, and I think that same mentality can be taken over to, um, some of the mantras that we've built, um, or some of the ways that we've interpreted the, the try harder mentality that has come out of the offsec organization. I think people have interpreted the try harder mentality that's like, no, you can't ask a question. I didn't have Google when I was coming up in the ethical hacking space. <laughs> I didn't have all the resources you have. I didn't have David's videos. I didn't have, you know, Udemy or Cyberry or INE or anything like that. So if I didn't have all of that and I figured it out, you have to figure it out too. And so we get back to this, you have to be this high. Your bar has to be this high if you want to be in this space. And I think that has created an unnecessary amount of toxicity. It's turned people away from our industry, which is you know which is a huge problem in and of itself. Um, and 
it has created the egos that say that like, oh, you don't have a CVE to your name, therefore you don't have a business being in this conversation. You don't have 100,000 followers on Twitter, you don't have a business being in this conversation. You haven't been hacking your entire life, you don't have a business being in this conversation. I think I think those egos have have created a level of toxicity that um, I think a lot of a lot of people who have that mentality are afraid of being usurped by the vast amount of information. I'm envious of all, I am envious of every person watching this video right now, wherever you are in your career. You have, if you're beginning in this career field and you're watching David's videos, I I would kill to be in your position because you have access to so much more information than I ever did when I was starting this. Um, you know, when I wrote my first brute forcer, password brute forcer, I did it in basic and I was trying to figure out how to do it because there wasn't an easy book on how to write basic. I was, I was 16 years old. You know, I wasn't going to go find a book in the library. There was no Google, you know, to be like, how do I hack, you know, how do I write a password brute forcer for, to get into a bulletin board system? Right. When I learned about, um, you know, this is when passwords were being stored in, um, in Etsy password versus Etsy shadow. I discovered that because I was working for a, a mechanical engineering company that had HPUX systems on a bus network. And I was just putzing around on the file system and I saw something that said PASSWD and I said, oh, cool, what's that? And I catted that and saw usernames and passwords on there, right? That was how we did it. That's not how you all who are consuming this content are gonna learn how to be some of the best hackers this this, this world has ever seen because you have access to so much more information. And I, I, I'd kill to be coming up in this space in the ethical hacking space because of that. And I think you make a lot of people nervous in, in our industry because of that. Yeah, I think it's, um, it uses it to your advantage. I mean, I think it's it's that whole thing. You can, you can build further because you're building on what others have done. And mm -hmm. um, so would you encourage young people or people breaking into the industry just to ignore that kind of nonsense and just focus on their goals, yeah? 100%. I think, I think you, you know, if you, you stay away from, you don't let your ego, right? Um, you know, Mark Wahlberg, right? You know, good, good, good saying in, in mile 22 in, in the movie mile 22, he says, he says, ego is not your amigo, right? Uh, ego is not your friend. Just stay away from it. Stay away from the toxicity. I mean, if you want to be part of this community, that's fine. But you see somebody popping off on Twitter, don't engage in that. Be better than that. Like that's, trust me, you know, I had somebody on the stream last night um, chatting. The, the, the question they asked me was, how do I make $500,000 a year in cybersecurity? And my answer to them was, make, was be a CISO. Right? You want to make $500,000 a year, be a CISO. You know how many CISOs have ever spent a day being a penetration tester in, in, in their life? Like zero. Yeah. Right? That's a good point. I mean, you know, if you want to be big, bad, bold, and beautiful, you want to make a lot of money in this in this space, you want to, you want to grow past the ethical hacking space, like all that toxicity that you surround yourself by it's not worth your time put your time and effort into doing something more productive in the industry so now here's the question for you i know you like three so if you've got three or five <laughs> what are the three top skills that you should get or five top skills that you would get um, i've seen a lot of people talk about this like they'll talk about you know you need to know bash and I, you've mentioned some of this already but like what would you forget about certs for the moment what would you suggest someone focus in on initially I'm going to pull away from the technical side and answer my number one on this, yep. something that um, uh, people don't necessarily think about, and it's the soft skills. Yeah, that's a good point. We have a problem in this industry where people don't know how to write a report. They don't know how to think like executives. They don't know how to talk to their peer group, let alone executives. And 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 I think that that, um, 
as we come out of the hoodies and as we come out of the shadows and as we come out of being like the 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 basement dwellers of the industry you know you need to embrace the fact that you may be in a polo or sometimes a suit sitting in front of a CISO or potentially the board me board members talking about you know cybersecurity as an industry and so i think we 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 have failed at developing those soft skills as an industry and as we become more and more mainstream as we see the industry continue to grow soft skills are going to be ridiculously important and that will get you more money yeah absolutely absolutely people people aren't and, and and i say this cynically you will always find edge cases just like we talk about streamers or or things like that you'll always find edge cases of people making millions of dollars on hacker one and and, and bug crowd and things like that um yeah if you got in on the ground floor and if you were crazy smart and if you had nothing but time to, to sit there and grind bugs out all day every day sure you could probably be that person but the people who are consistently predictably day in and day out making more money progressing their career further are the people who can get on camera and articulate to you the 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 ideas and the the, the value of things that are being brought to the table being able to sit in front of a CISO and explain the risk of of you know the solar winds attack to an entire organization be able to understand why you shouldn't have manufacturing systems that are running Windows NT, or maybe it is okay <laughs> for you to have manufacturing systems that run Windows NT and understanding how you look at an organization and apply a risk management approach to that Windows NT machine, instead of just throwing up your hands and saying, we should never be using Windows NT and, and complaining about it because that's those soft skills are what's killing us in our industry. Yeah. I had a, a CISO, um, he's the CISO at Unilever right now over in the UK. Um, he, he, he had a really great statement that he put forth um, uh, about it. He says, you know, in IT and cybersecurity, we've been the, the voice of no for, for well over 20 years. And we have to stop that. And instead, we have to ask ourselves, how do we enable the business to take risk? And that's where soft skills come to play. You want to make a ton of money? Figure out how to be the smartest technical guy in the room and explain how to enable the business to take risk. And you will literally be invaluable in this industry. I think that's great advice. So number one, soft skills, yeah. So like be, be able to present. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we can make a real joke of this, but like not live in a basement, <laughs> but like, you know, be presentable and all, all yeah. those kind of skills. But and then yeah. and what about technical skills? So so on the technical skills, I think the, the technical skills are hard because technology is always changing. Yeah. And, and so I think instead of instead of talking about a particular technical skills, I think when you talk about honing your technical skills, I think staying hungry is important. Always have that desire to learn. Um, you know, you talk about go and rust. We had some folks who were who were coming to the stream last night and they'd asked about like, have you has anybody ever done any hacking and go and rust? When when I was coming up, no, go and rust weren't even languages that we would even consider. Uh, to this day, um, I probably couldn't open up Go as a programming language and understand what Go looks like from a coding perspective. If I were to program something in Go, I would have to go and be hungry and go learn that language and figure out how to program that language and be able to to write some of the things that I've written in Python or Bash or C++ and write them in Go. And so you've got to have that hungry that says, there's something new out there that I want to make use of that I've got to go learn. Whether we talk about automation, whether we talk about new programming languages, whether we talk about new exploit um, opportunities, whether we talk about, um, you know, wh whatever is happening there in the industry, I think staying hungry and on the technical side, it's that hunger that's going to drive you to find the, I want to know more about this subject and therefore I'm going to become an expert. I'm going to figure out how to break that system. I'm going to figure out how to defend that system. I'm going to figure out how to look for bad guys in that system.
I'm going to push you though. So mm-hmm. you've, you've mentioned. Okay, so let me ask you this because I'm going to put you on the spot now. Which operating system should I use if I want to learn? <laughs> I'm going to I like be very pragmatic and very specific. I mean, you've mentioned oh Python. God. Which operating system? We're, we're, were you on? Were you on my stream last no, night? No, no, no. Literally copy copies those questions I had on my stream sorry, last night. Sorry, sorry. No, it wasn't. No, 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 no. I joke about that because it's like it's like yeah. This is this. It's so it's such a popular question and and I love it and and this is why I love answering it. Um, I have a MacBook that I hack on. Mac has Linux on it. It has a Kali VM on it that I also use to hack on it. It also has a Windows VM on it because applications like Kane Enable only run on Windows and Kane Enable to this day is the only application that does remote desktop protocol man in the middle attacks, right? Um, so you have to be flexible. I have a Windows machine uh, that has Windows 10 on it that has Burp Suite, Multigo, um, uh, tons of you know, you know Python libraries and things like that on it that you can use for web application security. You can use for for programming. You can use for that stuff, um, you know, as well bug bounty programs and things like that. But on this Windows 10 desktop, I also have Windows subsystem for Linux which is how you run Ubuntu on Windows without a virtual machine. And you can do Kali in WSL. You can do Ubuntu in WSL. You can do almost any Linux system you want in WSL. And so I think we're really starting to see, we talk about lines being blurry, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, look at your requirements. Like, do you do you need a laptop where you have to go to a client site every other week to do penetration testing, okay? Use your Mac buy a Linux dedicated laptop, you know, whatever it is you want to. If you're super into writing your own kernel, if you're super into doing your own IP tables, if you're super into, you know, all the customizations that you can do, absolutely go put, uh, go buy a System76 and, um, uh, you know, you know, a Linux dedicated laptop and, and do it that way. If you like MacBook because you can have a Linux-based operating system, but you still have the flexibility of some office-based controls because you still have to write reports. If you're doing ethical hacking, you will have to write a report. Don't think that you're ever going to be an ethical hacker without having to write a single report in your entire life because it's going to happen. So you're going to need Microsoft Office to, to write that report. So maybe Mac is the right answer. Maybe you're doing bug bounties at home. Maybe you uh, maybe you have to do a lot of corporate stuff and you're still doing hack the boxes and trainings. And so you use a Windows VM, a Windows machine with a Kali VM or you know Windows subsystem um, uh, for Linux uh, on a Windows machine to do it. I don't think it matters. What do I use? If I use whatever whatever meets my requirements. I'm really glad you said that because the problem I think is people try and put. Um other people into a box or in technology exactly. into a box. And I think the older you get and the more experienced you get, you realize lines are blurred. And it's, you know, don't get hung up on this shiny object. There's there's a lot of options. And I think what, you, what you've really said well is soft skills will go further in life than technical skills. If you can present, if you can write, in some ways that can take you much further, especially if you go into management, than just pure technical skills. But a combination of both is is, is, is a fantastic skill set to have. I'm, I'm hoping for the day that we have more technical CISOs uh, sitting at the, the, the larger levels of organizations, um, you know, because I think that that's where we have to be in, in cybersecurity. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think I think people people are used to boxes. And it, we talked earlier about, you know, cert, uh, certifications versus degrees. And, and I think we talked offline about the, 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 you know, the usefulness of a degree. And I think the institutions of degrees and in, in colleges and things like that have created the construct of a box. That's like, if you want to be successful, it needs to be in this box. Yeah. And I think the difference that we're seeing in cybersecurity is there isn't a box that says you have to be in this box to be successful. Yeah, so basically to sum that up, you're saying there are many, many paths. It's 
just stay hungry, keep learning every day, um, and it's going to make a big difference in your career. Absolutely, 100%. Neil, we're out of time again, man. This this goes yes. way too quick. So I really want to thank you for <laughs> for joining me again. Really appreciate it. Always, always. Thank you for having me, David. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Be sure to visit David's YouTube channel at David Bumble, where you can subscribe and watch all of his videos. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Catch you next time on the David Bumble Networking Podcast. All the best. Take care.